I'm Leila Cosgrove, and you're listening to the 8% Podcast, where we talk to artists and entrepreneurs who are committed to excellence, who are obsessed with creativity and innovation, and who are courageous and resilient. Hi, guys. Welcome to today's podcast. Um, today, I am speaking with Amanda Palmer. I have personally been a fan of Amanda's since I randomly caught the film clip uh, for the Dresden Dolls song, Coin Operated Boy on Rage last uh, really late one night. I might have been potentially slightly drunk at the time and was very, very amused by it. Um, I've watched her go from indie rock star to million dollar Kickstarter to TED presenter to author. And what I've always admired about her is her complete and utter dedication to doing things her own way. She's no stranger to controversy. She polarizes like a motherfucker. She really embodies all of the traits I admire the most about the 8%, excellence, courage, and creativity. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, for those who don't know your story, I kind of, for me, I think one of the most interesting parts of it and where I'd really like to start is a little while back, you had a, a fairly public breakup with your record label um, and mm. basically decided to go your own way, do your own thing. You now have like your own office and stuff. What kind of made you decide when that all went down, what made you decide to go the route of doing it yourself rather than just going and signing up with another label? Um, because one of the most frustrating things that I found about the process with the label wasn't so much that the label itself was a bad match with me and the band, which was definitely true. We, we, we didn't really choose, you know, the most copacetic label for a band like us. But then again, you know, we had a hard time getting signed at all because we were so weird. And, you know, I... I sent out a package to any and and every indie label that you can think of, and they all kind of looked at us and said, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, you know, we were desperate at a certain point because we were doing really well. We were touring, we had a fan base, we were excited, people loved our band, but, but we were doing all the work. And so, you know, when Roadrunner Records came along and they were a metal label and offered to sign us, we just we took the deal because I didn't feel like I could start my own label and tour. Mm. And and here were these guys who said they believed in the band and could work the strangeness. Um, and it didn't work. But I also learned that you know this is. Do you have to remember what year this was? This was around 2004, 2005, and we were just getting the first taste of being able to to release music without a label. It was just the dawn of when you could burn your own CDs and you could put a clip up on the internet. And I just sort of looked at the whole situation and thought, you know, I could go try this with another label, but I'll never have complete control. The only way I'll have complete control is if I just do it myself. And you know, I, I still look back at that and sometimes second-guess myself and think, oh, you know, if I'd signed with a label, I wouldn't have had all this drama with staff and hiring and firing people and having to have an office and, you know, having to make all these decisions and having to learn about printing CDs and vinyl and breakage and problems and, 
you know, and I might have been more successful or more famous or more admired by the hipster community because they would have actually been sort of legitimized. But honestly, I would never go back and redo it because I've, you know, I've really forged my own path and yeah. I've never felt as grateful until recently with the Patreon where I just like get a fucking idea and I do it and then I yes. get another idea and I do it. And if I get an idea and I don't want to finish it, I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to do it. Like yeah. I really I really get to just totally call the shots and get paid. And you know, and the thing that worried me the most was sort of just being in an echo chamber of fans. But then I put the David Bowie release out a couple of weeks ago and it spread far beyond the fan base and I looked at that situation and I was like, you know, this is so awesome. I never could have done this on a record label, not in a million years. Not even if I were on the coolest record label on the face of the planet could I have put out an album in 10 days. Yeah. They just wouldn't have let me. Totally. So, I, you know, it's funny looking now at the situation that's happening with Kesha. Oh, because totally. yeah. part of the reason I was part of the reason I was lucky is because I wasn't famous enough to be that valuable to a record label. Right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't I wasn't covered. I didn't have a price tag on my head of millions of dollars. I wasn't worth very much. Mm. You know, from a purely capitalist point of view, I wasn't worth very much to that label. And for me to fight to get off, they were a little grumpy, but they were also like, eh, you know, Amanda Palmer's not going to make us very much money. Yeah. She's not a pop star. Sure. She doesn't have a hit. And, you know, and that's the problem. A lot of people have been asking me about Kesha and why I haven't been more outspoken. And, you know, she's really in a, in a scary and tough situation mm. because she is so valuable because she is a pop star. Yeah, and everything changes once you're a pop star and not an and not an indie rocker who's making you know thousands of dollars instead of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions. It really changes the game. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I love what you're saying there because I think that something I see, and we work with both like entrepreneurs and we do work with a lot of artists, with a lot of uh, whether it's like musicians or visual artists and stuff, uh, tend to be quite attracted to us. I think because both me and my husband come from kind of an arts background. And something I find is how often artists feel like they have to sign away their lives, their work. I mean, in the case of Kesha, it feels like her soul in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. And partially because of the money and partially, I think, just because they're afraid of the business side of things and they're afraid of having to learn that and they just want to focus on their art and do that. But then I think Kesha, again, is that perfect example of what are you giving up in return for it? What are you letting go of in return for it? Not only creatively, but also, you know, in terms of control of your own life and, you know, a, you know, control of your own body. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a rude awakening that happens with everyone who signs up to be a pop star mm. from, from Lady Gaga to Kesha to you name it. You know, you go in very cavalierly everyone thinks you're incredible, you're sort of on your way up, you don't really pay attention to the contracts and the money because it doesn't matter because you're famous and, you know, money is sort of being thrown at you hmm. until the day it doesn't work. Yeah. And I know that I, I know that certainly happened with Lady Gaga 
and I know, you know, it's clear to see it's happening with Kesha now. Mm. And you really do kind of sign a deal with the devil because it works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't work, oh my God, you are so fucked. <laughs> totally. <laughs> really, really fucked. Really, really fucked if you owe Sony Records seven albums yeah. and they decide that they're going to shelve you, they decide that they don't like your direction, they decide that, you know, you name it, they have all the control. Yeah. And you don't realize how stifled you are until you decide that you don't want to play exactly the game that you signed up to play. Mm-hmm. And it's infuriating. Mm. And I, I'm so lucky I got off. I mean, if I were still stuck on Roadrunner Records now and hadn't gotten off in 2008... Can you imagine what my life would be like and what kind of music I would be making? Totally. What my schedule would be like, what my internet presence would be like. I mean, it would have been a fucking nightmare. What your level of joy would have been like. Like, I think one of the things so many people love about you is just, like, your unabashed joy. And and even when it's hard, like, just being out there and being so present and being so you and your ability to do that would have been completely compromised. Yeah. I mean, and it was. I felt it. You know, everything was sort of all copacetic and great with the first Dresden Dolls record. And although there was this sort of, you know, we could feel the first inklings of maybe things are not quite right here. They don't seem to totally understand us, but whatever. You know, it's great and we're touring the world and they're helping us tour and they're getting us press in Germany and they're taking us to Australia and they're getting us on Triple J and the label's amazing. And still to this day, I think they did a great job on that first record. Um, But when the second record came around and the label were sort of cracking their knuckles, sort of saying like, okay, here's where all of the work on that first record is supposed to pay off. And we're hoping that this album charts and we're hoping that this band goes mainstream and we're hoping that this band all of a sudden makes us back all of the money we spent on that first record. And the album didn't fly off the shelf. Mm. We were, I mean, we were just dropped like a hot potato. All of a sudden, there was no attention. There were no posters. There was no one picking us up at the airport. And as far as Brian and I were concerned, nothing had changed because we had been growing our band slowly from day one, touring and touring and meeting fans and playing shows to 100 people and then 150 and then 200 and 300. And we didn't expect to be a flash in the pan. We expected things to just grow slowly because that made sense. And so we were flabbergasted because we thought our second album was fantastic and our fans loved it. And there was no hit, but we weren't a hit-making band. Yep. We were a weird-ass punk <laughs> cabaret band with seven-minute songs. Like We didn't expect any of those songs to hit the radio and be Kesha level. Yeah. We just figured we would put out our record, keep touring, and it would keep being more and more awesome as it had been for the past, you know, six years. And the label saw a completely different picture. The label saw that album come out week one, sell less copies week two, and we're just like, nope, we're done. We're done with you guys. Mm. And we couldn't believe it. We were so, we were so hurt. We felt like we'd been so scammed. Mm. And we felt so misunderstood. Like I remember calling up the label and trying to explain that, that they had it wrong, right. that this band was never going to have a hit, but yeah. that if they stuck with us and they supported us, 
we would continue to be more and more awesome and more people would come and more people would come. And eventually we'd be playing the 5,000 people, but probably not tomorrow. Yeah. And they just didn't want to hear that. And in that sense, the whole music business is so fucked because they're all so short-sighted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, artist development is like a four-letter word. Like, they, they would never think five years ahead or seven years ahead. And had they, things might have gone very differently for, yeah. for the band and for them and for me. Yeah. But we'll never know. Yeah. It's, it's a common story, isn't it? I think not just in music, you hear a lot of the same stuff um, in publishing first book's not as much of a hit and so they just pull all of the marketing um, and stop really throwing stuff behind them. Like it's such a common story. And so uh, I guess I look at it being uh, kind of on the forefront of a lot of this digital stuff as as being such an old school way of thinking. And like you say, so short-sighted because it's not – the way things are now, it's it's the record labels and the publishers, we don't really need them for distribution anymore. It's really distributions become democratized and we can kind of go out and do it on our mm-hmm. own. So, I mean, in a in a digital age when things are like this, what do we really need them for? It's a good question. And, I mean, there are – I still advocate for artists needing help. Yes. Artists don't want to sit around doing admin all day. <laughs> Great. It's boring. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a waste of time if if you really could be spending that time creating. And there are people who are really good at admin and really good at wheeling and dealing yeah. and really good at marketing and really good at building websites and really good at manufacturing vinyl and really good at, like really good at all the things that the artist should not necessarily have to do if it's not their skill set. Mm. And I think artists will always need help. But it should be help. <laughs> yeah. And and this is I mean, this is where the music business really became backwards. Because, you know, all of a sudden with scarcity and with printed you know, printed recordings and the ability to, you know, sell an album for twenty bucks to anyone who wanted to buy you know, walk into a record store and buy it, all of a sudden the artists were sort of in service of the label. Mm instead of the label being the arm of the music business that helped the artist. Mm. And, you know, I mean, there were some, some fantastic partnerships between the music business and some artists. And, you know, a lot of artists are really lucky and have fantastic managers and really supportive labels. But those are rare. Those are rare partnerships where you look at the label and the, you know, the machinery behind the artist and you go, oh, my God, this artist is so lucky. They have so much help mm-hmm. and their help is fantastic and the money is divided fairly and everyone feels good when they get up in the morning and go to their job. Yeah. Because um, mostly it's a nightmare and mostly it isn't even. Mostly it's really, you know, a lot of people out there screwing a lot of people. And, you know, one thing that you said just struck me, which is sort of, you know, this sort of scarcity thing and middlemen being an old school way of doing things. But actually, you know, in the course of human life, it's actually quite a new way of doing things. And if you look way back, someone who's a good artist and a good musician and a good contributor to the the village, they wouldn't be expected to just be great today and maybe tomorrow and then we'll dispose of them. 
if you were if you were contributing something artistically to your community, you know, thousands of years ago, you were just generally kind of valued the same way the person who was good at cooking and hunting and gathering and painting was valued, which is you have value to our collection of people. We will support you. Yeah. And what I'd love to think about the internet is that we kind of get back around to that, which is that artists are not up on some crazy, insane pedestal, but are just considered part of the fabric and ecosystem of the way we do life. And they have something valuable to offer. It doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be a rock star or a gazillionaire or apart from the people that you're making the art for and mm. with. You're with them. Absolutely. That, that's what I really love, I think, about what you're doing with Patreon. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard of Patreon, Patreon's a different kind of crowdfunding platform. Um, it's what I call continuity crowdfunding because I think in marketing we have this idea of continuity is amazing, get people on a monthly payment, provide value for it, but then you've got that ongoing income. Um, and Patreon works very much in that way, but for artists to be able to put out their art and have that either monthly or per thing that they put out, um, income coming in directly with the fans and you're very much like a pioneer in this space um, what was your thinking behind getting involved with it well it, I mean it's a long story and it starts with my Kickstarter so you know I'm I sort of became famous and infamous for my Kickstarter <laughs> because if you know it, it made over a million dollars but I built it that way I mean I really built it to kind of you know, impress everybody mm. because I knew that my fans would be there. I mean, I I had done sort of proto Kickstarter like pre-orders with a few albums before I put the the actual Kickstarter online, and I knew that my fans would show up. Yeah, and I knew that they would pay me money for something that they weren't going to see for four or five months because they trusted me. And I learned a, a boatload of things from my Kickstarter experience. Um, you know, I've come out openly and said it wasn't very well budgeted. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, that's that's the other funny thing. It's like there's the perils of major labels, and then there's the perils of Kickstarter, which is if you don't budget well, or if something goes wrong, or there's mm -hmm. unexpected costs, or you know, there's a fork in the road. You're really responsible to your fans, and you're going to be the first one to take the financial hit if. Yeah boxes go missing and you know something costs more than it does or the postage system changes and all of a sudden what you thought was going to cost five dollars to ship costs 25 and you're sending that to a thousand people mm. and so on and so forth so you know a, a lot of artists i know have had this conversation with me and with each other you know the kickstarter it's kind of great but it also is so much more work than anyone signs up for. Yeah. And while we're happy to do that work, once you've done the work once and you've slaved for a year to, you know, create an album and print it and mail it out to people with thank you cards and a bow on top, um, the idea of doing it again is like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, and there's also this this thing of like not wanting to barrage people with with yeah. stuff. Yeah. Because if what people really want is for you to be making music, writing songs, doing work, 
But what you're actually spending 90% of your time on is like coming up with clever poster ideas and getting them in the mail and checking yeah. on pricing and getting people stuff so that they feel like their you know their 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 backing or their patronage is being rewarded. But you let's say over the course of 10 years you want to put out six albums. Yep. Do your fans need six posters? Do they need six beer cozies and do they need do they need all of the stuff or mm -hmm. is it okay to sort of turn that way of thinking off and say like no I'm just going to make the music and you'll get the music. Yeah. And and pay me for that and I'll send it to you digitally so that I don't have to spend half my year you know keeping track of everybody's addresses and mm. sending stuff. Mm. And so so you know I after I finished my Kickstarter I sort of looked around and thought okay well here I am I've put this fantastic record out. The Kickstarter got way more attention than the record itself which was a massive bummer. And now I'm at a crossroads again. I could go sign up with a label. You know, I'm not morally opposed to that. I could keep doing this myself. I could do another Kickstarter. I could build a Kickstarter-like system on my own website. Mm. I certainly have the money and the team to do that now. Mm. Um, and right around the time I was thinking about all this, Patreon sort of popped up as a brand new company. And I knew them. I personally knew Jack because he, Pomplamoose, his band, had opened up for me. And, you know, I was one of the first people that he reached out to, 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 to tell what, you know, what he was doing. And I looked at it and I said, you know, this is the sort of thing I would build on my own website, mm. but you guys are already doing it. And I'm happy to give you 5% of my income so that I don't have to deal with building this on my <laughs> website. Totally. <laughs> because... Because it's a really useful tool. And, you know, I've been in the Patreon offices. There are 80 people sitting behind us mm. making sure that website works. It is not simple shit. It's mm. really complicated. Yeah. And, and I thought about it for more than a year. And I had meetings with Jack and meetings with people over at Patreon. And I looked at artists using it. And I watched them work out some of the bugs. And I had phone conversation after phone conversation about Jack, you know, with Jack about how it could work and what the tiers should be and what the message should be and how we should, you know, what should we tell people I'm making? Mm. I mean, that, like, you might take that for granted, but I, I wasn't even quite sure what to call it. Yeah. Like, am I making music? But I'm not just making music. Am I making art? That sounds a little wishy-washy. And that's when I came up with things. I'm just making things. Making things <laughs> and stuff, and you know, I I spent a lot of time strategizing about how to put that page together because you know I thought this is more than just a Kickstarter. This is going to be here potentially forever, or at least for the next you know five or six years of my career. Mm. I want to make sure I launch this right because you only get one chance to to launch a page like that. So. Yeah. I really took my time and was super strategic about it. And that's one of the things about me that's, you know, that's sort of the contradiction or the, the double-sidedness, which is I love doing things fast and randomly and spontaneously, but when it comes to stuff like that, I'm really cagey and I'm really slow. Yeah. And I take my time so that the framework for my ability to work fast and sloppy is is solid. Yeah. And... Yeah, and by the time I launched it, I really believed in it. I really believed in the people at Patreon. I really believed that the fan base was going to get behind it, which they did. And now I'm I'm like a convert. 
I think it's great. I think it's not great for all artists, mm. but I think it's great for people doing podcasts and webcasts. I think it's great for people doing regular journalism. I think it's great for artists like me who are really communicative and want a place to just sort of bounce things out into the world on a kind of regular basis. So I'm I'm really proud of it. Yeah. I think it worked. I think what's really cool about it um, in, I mean, because you could go on and just sell records or do that in order to continue making money. What's really cool is that it kind of embodies a lot of what you talk about in The Art of Asking about allowing people to give you money at varying levels. Like you've got people who are giving you up to like $1,000 rather than just buying an album. Um, and it really allows the community, which I, I love what you say about being strategic because that's something as I was reading The Art of Asking the first time, I was sitting there laughing because for a musician, artist, this far out indie rocker chick, you are such a marketer and a strategic marketer <laughs> at that, like uh, collecting collecting people's email addresses after after the Dresden Doll show and being smart enough not to just hand that list over to the record company when you signed up, but holding on to that asset, which, you know, we know in marketing, that list of people who adore you is everything. Um, and the work yeah. that you put into that to build it up and, and then allowing people to do it at whatever level they're comfortable at doing, which I think people struggle with that. I know I've seen other people that I've backed on Patreon who have, you know, a $1 level and a $5 level and they tap themselves out at like a $100 level. And it's like, but you're not allowing, yeah. people will give you more, but you just need to like let go and allow them to. Yeah, and I've actually, you know, I've kind of struggled with how to get the balance right. Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm actually about to change that. Um, I haven't announced it yet, but right. I I think I'm gonna open. You know, I I um I capped the hundred and thousand dollar backers at um you know at a low level, hoping that I could give them you know, personalized attention and send postcards and stuff. And I have done a little bit of that, but I also have the feeling that um, that there are a lot more people who would like to get higher levels mm. and who would be happy to get really, you know, like slightly less personalized but still special stuff in the mail. I've been thinking about doing collaborations with different artists, friends of mine, and, you know, doing sort of limited edition art cards but and signing them, but you know, not not having to, you know, not feeling like I have to send a postcard five times a year to someone who's giving me that money because I don't think they really feel like they need that. Yeah, I think it's enough to say like, I'll send you a postcard when you sign up, and I will thank you personally, and I'll send you an email, you know, and I'll keep my lines open to you. So if you want to get in touch with me, you know, I can't offer that to 8,000 people, but I can offer that to 100 people. Yeah. And here's my email. And if you want to talk and if you want to give me some input, feel free. Um, and I'm thinking of opening that up. You know, I, I, I was sort of of two minds about it. There was a, one part of me that wanted to just close it down and just keep and have my highest, you know, patronage tier at $10. Yeah. Just so it felt so I never had to feel guilty. And cause there, there is still this little piece of guilt in the back of my mind. You know, when I put a song out or a project out, I'm like, oh, my God, is this really worth $100? Like, there's these 30 people out there, and I know they support me, but, God, is this worth someone's money? And I just didn't want to have to grapple with that. But it's so funny. It's like I'm, 
you know, it's like I'm not listening to my own message. <laughs> because honestly, if people felt that way, they would just disengage and they would just yep. take away their patronage. And, and so far that hasn't happened. Yeah. So, you know, I really need to believe that if someone's backing me at that amount of money, they're not struggling. You know, they're they're giving me that money because they have it to give and they want to put their money into, you know, into into art through me instead of through giving it to NPR or giving it to the Museum of Fine Arts or giving it to wherever. And I think that's great, but it's like even me, the queen of asking and the queen of let everybody give you money, like even I squirm sometimes thinking about that and kind of need to get over it because like, you know, like everyone gets cold when they ask me, I'm like, just take the help. If someone wants to give you a thousand bucks, great. Yeah. Say thank you. <laughs> yes. Totally. Like as as a higher level supporter on your Patreon, I would agree with that completely. I think that those of us who kind of looked at the higher levels and opted in at that level were like, you know, we love you, we love what you do, and we're happy for you to to take that and run with it and do whatever you're going to do because we try. I mean, we wouldn't be there if we didn't trust you in the first place um, and if we didn't love what you did. And, yeah, like I think you're totally right about that. I think the, the psychology behind it is we want to do that. And I think there's also, like I know for me personally, I was a sort of poor struggling writer at one point and had no money and had no stuff and, and sort of watched all these amazing mm. things happen around me that I couldn't participate in and now sort of, 10 years later, having worked, having established a business for myself, having created that kind of cash flow, I love having the ability to give back to people, um, yeah. not just like give back to you, but to give back to the fans as well because I feel like by giving a larger amount, I'm kind of contributing for the people who would if they could. Yeah, and I, and I love that feeling as well. You know, I think I, I love supporting other people on Patreon. I love supporting people's Kickstarters. I love, you know, boosting people's Kickstarters. And I will be the first one to admit, I often don't want the stuff. Yeah. I often want to hear the record, but I don't need to get, you know, a badge in the mail and a signed poster and a thank you letter. And like, to me, it's, it's almost always enough to just know that I helped. Yeah. Oh, did I lose you? No, I'm right here. Oh, good. Oh, you dropped out a little bit. Um, I yeah, I know you've been kind of you've been fairly open with the Patreons about having the struggles around how to use the platform and what should be included. But I feel like you really hit your stride with the release of the Bowie album. It seems to be like everything's mm. really crystallized for you since that's happened. Yeah, I actually I mean, I feel like the the combination of the Bowie record a couple weeks ago, the song slash, you know, 8,000 word essay <laughs> I put out today, mm. which is also, you know, one of the things that I feel like I put out today is, yes, a song, um, yes, a, an 8,000 word essay that goes along with a song that's kind of funny and also kind of not, um, but it's also a conversation. Mm. My favorite thing about the thing I put out today, if you go online and look at it, is you know, there's now going to be hundreds of comments from all of these people sharing their version of the experience that I shared. And to me, that's the best part. That's my favorite part. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, the David Bowie album was fantastic, but it, it's not going to strike up much discussion other than, 
yeah, it's a real bummer that David Bowie died and his music's fantastic. <laughs> and there's not a whole much more, you know, a lot more to share. Yeah. But the the one I put out today is a, it, it's like releasing a conversation mm. and a song. Mm. Um, and the song I'm going to put out in a couple weeks, which is the first big production original song that is going out on the Patreon, because I've, I've released a few ukulele songs and the David Bowie and the song that I put out today was recorded really quickly and you know the song that I'm putting out in a couple of weeks is like a full production with incredible strings and it's an original song that means a lot to me and it it feels like the first big real Amanda original thing that's going out on the Patreon and that's its own that's going to be its own unique experience and see how it goes and 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 this is the way I wanted it. This is the way I wanted to work. I wanted to make stuff, record it, and then put it out kind of in my own way, in my own time. Yeah. And the only thing that that still distresses me a little bit is, you know, the song goes out and that's it. It doesn't go to radio. It yeah. doesn't go to, you know, you'll never hear it in a coffee shop. It's not, it doesn't have a major label behind it. It doesn't have anybody out there pimping it to get played anywhere. It just is. It just exists. And if it's going to be heard by anybody, it's because somebody on the Internet, somebody, you know, in my Patreon or who heard it on Facebook or on Twitter shares it. And that's it. And there's something about that that's very kind of scary and lonely because that's when, you know, the comfort of the machine behind you and that wand of legitimacy that being on a label who's like servicing your music to, you know, all of the press and the stations and the machine that, you know, that puts, puts your music out to, you know, people who would otherwise never find it. I don't have that anymore. I lost that with the Dresden dolls and I see the difference. I mean, I remember what it was like to have a label behind me and have them be servicing our songs and stuff to radio and have a whole office of people sending out packages and getting on phones and trying to convince people at Rolling Stone to listen to our record. I'm not doing any of that. (laughs) I'm I'm just having total faith in the idea that if the music is good, people will share it. Mm. Do you think there's space... For that, like outside of record labels, do you think there's space for businesses that are that intermediary without the maybe level of monstrosity that seems to go on? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, at some point in the future, if I if I stick with this system, which I think I will, I'll hopefully have the resources. You know, once once I save some money, because you know. Uh, Hopefully more, you know, patrons will sort of come on board and I will really start having a working budget to have more than just me and my assistant, you know, and a part-time internet team, which mm. is all I've got right now. Yeah. And I'll be able to hire a really great publicist and a really great, you know, music licensing person. And I will be able to create my version of record label you know, which is people who are dedicated to taking the music outside of our fan cave. But if you look at the David Bowie EP, you know, that just sort of stood on its own. And yes, like I, I reached out 
to Pitchfork to ask if they would um, give it a listen and feature it. And they did. And they put it up. And then all the other music press went, oh, my God, Pitchfork put it up. We should write about this. Yeah. And people all over the world heard it, listened to it, and, and loved it and downloaded it. So, you know, I don't think it takes that much to compete, um, but it takes a little bit more than – it takes, you know, a little bit more than I can – do right now with the resources that I have, mm. but I don't think it's going to be long until I catch up, and I'm and I'm excited for that. I love know? that. I love that. You're like building your own machine, but an ethical machine that isn't going to like hurt you. <laughs> it's going to do your bidding work exactly. for you Hopefully. instead. <laughs> That's amazing, Amanda. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You are so welcome. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about Amanda's music, her Patreon, her book, or her TED Talk, or if you'd like to learn more about The 8% and hear other interviews with amazing artists and entrepreneurs, head over to the number 8percent.com forward slash podcasts, the 8percent.com forward slash podcast.